Section 7 of The Black Prophet by William Carlton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 7. Chapter 14. A Middleman Magistrate of the Old School and His Clerk. Dick of the Grange, whose name was Henderson, at least such is the name we choose to give him, held his office, as many Irish magistrates have done before him, in his own parlour. That is to say, he sat in an armchair at one of the windows which was thrown open for him, while those who came to seek justice, or as they termed it, law, at his hands, were compelled to stand uncovered on the outside, no matter whether the weather was stormy or otherwise. We are not now about to pronounce any opinion upon the constitutional spirit of Dick's decisions, inasmuch as nineteen out of every twenty of them were come to by the only magistrate's guide he ever was acquainted with, to wit, the redoubtable Jemmy Brannigan. Jemmy was his clerk, and although he could neither read nor write, yet in cases where his judgments did not give satisfaction, he was both able and willing to set his mark upon the discontented parties in a fashion that did not allow his blessed signature to be easily forgotten. Jimmy, however, as the reader knows, was absent on the morning we are writing about, having actually fulfilled his threat of leaving his master's service, a threat, by the way, which was held out and acted upon at least once every year since he and the magistrate had stood to each other in the capacity of master and servant. Not that we are precisely correct in the statement we had made on this matter, for sometimes his removal was the result of dismissal on the part of his master, and sometimes the following up of the notice which he himself had given him to leave his service. Be this as it may, his temporary absences always involved a trial of strength between the parties, as to which of them should hold out and put a constraint upon his inclinations the longest. For since the truth must be told of Jimmy, we are bound to say that he could as badly bear to live removed from the society of his master as the latter could live without him. For many years of his life he had been threatening to go to America, or to live with a brother that he had in the Isle of Wight, as he called it, and on several occasions he had taken formal leave of the whole family, always in the presence of his master, however, on his departure for either the one place or the other, while his real abode was a snug old garret where he was attended and kept in food by the family and his fellow-servants, who were highly amused out the outrageous distress of his master, occasioned sometimes by Jimmy's obstinate determination to travel, and sometimes by his extreme brotherly affection. Donal, having left his son cracking a long whip, which he held in his hand, and looking occasionally at the tress of Maeve Sullivan's beautiful hair, approached the hall door, at which he knocked, and on the appearance of a servant, requested to see Mr. Henderson. The man waved his hand towards the space under the window, meaning that he should take his stand there, and added, If it's law you want, I'm afeard you'll get more abuse than justice for him now, since Jemmy's gone. The knowing grin, and the expression of comic sorrow, which accompanied the last words, were not lost upon the prophet, who, in common with every one in the neighbourhood for a circumference of many miles, was perfectly well aware of the life which master and man both led. "'Is that it?' said the prophet. "'However, it can't be helped. Clark or no Clark, I want to see him on serious business, tell him. But I'll wait, of course, till he's at leisure.' "'Tom,' said Henderson from within, "'who's there?' is that him if it is tell him confound him to come in and i'll forgive him if he'll promise to keep a civil tongue in his head i'll forget all say come in you old scoundrel i'm not angry with you i want to speak to you at all events it's not him sir it's only donald mcgowan the black prophet that wants some law business send him to the devil for law business what brings him here now 
tell him he shall have neither law nor justice from me did you send to his brother-in-law maybe he's there sorrow one of his seed breed or generation but we sent two however it's no use off to america he's gone or to the isle of wight at any rate may the devil sink america and the isle of wight both in the ocean and you too you scoundrel and all of you only for the cursed crew that is about me i'd have him here still and he the only man that understood my wants and my wishes and that could keep me comfortable and easy truth then he hadn't an overly civil tongue in his head sir replied the man for when you and he your honour were together there was little harmony to spare between you that was my own fault you cur no servant but himself would have had a day's patience with me he never abused me but when i deserved it did he no your honour i know he didn't in truth you lie you villain you know no such thing here i am with my sore leg and no one to dress it for me who's to help me upstairs or downstairs who's to be about me or who cares for me now that he's gone nobody not a soul does it master richard sir no sir master richard gives himself little trouble about me he has other plots and plans on his hands other fish to fry over irons in the fire master richard sirrah doesn't care a curse if i was under the sod to-morrow but would be glad of it neither does any one about me but he did and you infernal crew you have driven him away from me we your honour yes all of you you put me first out of temper by your neglect and your extravagance then i vented it on him because he was the only one among you i took any pleasure in abusing speaking to however my mind's made up i'll call an auction sell everything and live in dublin as well as i can what does that black hound want some law business sir but i don't know what it is is the scoundrel honest or a rogue troth it's more than i'm able to tell your honour sir i don't know much about him some speaks well and some speaks ill of him just like his neighbours ay <clears throat> and that's all you can say of him but if he was here i could soon ascertain what stuff he's made of and what kind of a hearing he ought to get however it doesn't matter now i'll auction everything in this grange i won't live and to be sure but i was a precious old scoundrel to quarrel with the best servant a man ever had just at this moment who should come round from a back passage carrying a small bundle in his hand but the object of all his solicitude he approached quietly on tiptoe with a look in which might be read a most startling and ludicrous expression of anxiety and repentance how is he said he how is his poor leg o oh, thin blessed saints but i was the double distilled villain of the earth to leave him as i did to the crew that was about him the best master that ever an old vagabond like me was ungrateful to how is he tom why replied the other if you take my advice you'll keep from him at all events he's cursing and abusing you ever since you went and won't allow one of us even to name you truth and it only shows his sense for i deserved nothing else at his hands however if what you say is true i'm afeard he's not long for this world and that his talking sense at last is only the lightning before death poor gentleman i can stay no longer from him anyhow let him be as he may and god pardon me for my ingratitude in desertin him like a villain as i did he then walked into the parlour and as the prophet was beckoned as far as the hall he had an opportunity of witnessing the interview which took place between this extraordinary pair jemmy before entering threw aside his bundle and his hat stripped off his coat and in a moment presented himself in the usual striped cotton jacket with sleeves which he always wore old dick was in the act of letting fly an oath at something when jimmy walking in just as if nothing had happened exclaimed why then mother of moses is it at the old work i find you troth it's past counsel past grace with you 
I'm afraid you're too old to mend. In the meantime, don't stare as if you've seen a ghost. Only tell us how is that unfortunate leg of yours. Why, eh, I, oh, I, you're back, are you? And what the devil brought you here again, eh? Come now, keep yourself quiet, you unpenitent old sinner, or it'll be worse for you. How was you like? Oh, it's provoking old rascal, eh? So you are back? Don't you see I am? Who would stick to you like myself, after all? Troth, I missed your dirty tongue, bad as it is. Devil a thing, but rank pace and quietness I was ever in since I seen you last. And devil a scoundrel has had the honesty to give me a single word of abuse to my face since you left me. And how often did I tell you that you couldn't depend upon the crew that's around you? Truth's not in them, and that you ought to know. However, so far as I'm concerned, don't fret. God knows I forgive you all your folly and feastalaga, which means nonsense, in hopes always that you'll mend your life in many respects. You had meself before you as an example, though I say it, that oughtn't to say it, but you know you didn't take pattern by me as you ought. Shake hands, Jimmy, I'm glad to see you again. You were put to expense since you went. No, none, no, I tell you, but I say you were. There, keep yourself quiet. No, I wasn't, and if I was, too, what is it to you? Here, put that note in your pocket. Saw a bit now, replied Jimmy, to please you, gripping it tightly at the same time as he spoke. Do you want to vex me again? Put it in your pocket, sirrah, unless you want me to break your head. Oh, he would, said Jimmy, looking with a knowing face of terror towards Tom Booth and the prophet. It's the weight of his cane I'd get, sure enough. But it's an old saying, and a true one, that when the generosity's in, it must come out. There, now, I've put it in my pocket for you, and I hope you're satisfied. Devil is such a tyrant in Europe, said he loudly, when he wishes, and yet after all, he added in a low, confidential voice, just loud enough for his master to hear, where would one get the like of him? Tom Booth, desire him to fetch warm water to the study till I press his poor leg and make him fit for business. Here is Donald Dew, replied Booth, waiting for law business. Go to the windy, Donald, said Jimmy, with an authoritative air. Go to your ground, but before you do, let me know what you want. I'll do no such thing, replied the prophet, unless to say that it's a matter of life and death. Go out, repeated Jimmy, with a brief and determined authority, and wait till it's his honour's convenience, his full convenience, to see you. As dark a rogue, sir, he continued, having shoved the prophet outside and slapped the door in his face, and as great a schemer as ever put a coat on his back, he's as big a liar too when he likes as ever broke bread but there's far more danger in him when he tells the truth for then you may be sure he has some devil's design in view dick of the grange though vulgar and eccentric was by no means deficient in shrewdness and common sense neither was he deliberately an unjust man but like too many in the world he generally suffered his prejudices and his interests to take the same side having had his leg dressed and been prepared by jiminy for the business of the day he took his place as usual in the chair of justice had the window thrown open and desired the prophet to state the nature of his business the latter told him that the communication must be a private one as it involved a matter of deep importance being no less than an affair of life and death this startled the magistrate who with a kind of awkward embarrassment ordered or rather requested jemmy to withdraw intimating that he would be sent for if his advice or opinion should be deemed necessary no matter replied jimmy the loss will be your own for sure i know the nice hand you make of law when you're left to yourself only before i go mark my words there you stand donald do and i'm tellin him to be on his guard against you 
don't put trust please your honor in either his word or his oath and if he's bringin a charge against any one give it in favor of his enemy whoever he is i heard that he was once tried for robbery and i only wonder it wasn't for murder too for in truth and soul if ever a man has both one and the other in his face he has it's known to me that he's seen now and then colloguin and skulkin behind the hedges about dusk with red roddy duncan that was in twist for robbery troth it's birds of feather with them and i wouldn't be surprised if we were to see them both swing from the same rope yet so there's my character of you you villain he added addressing m'gowan at whom he felt deeply indignant in consequence of his not admitting him to the secret of the communication he was about to make henderson when left alone with the prophet heard the disclosures which the latter made to him with less surprise than interest he himself remembered the circumstances perfectly well and knew that on the occasion of condy dalton's former arrest appearances had been very strong against him it was then expected that he would have disclosed the particular spot in which the body had been concealed but as he strenuously persisted in denying any knowledge of it and as the body consequently could not be produced they were obliged of necessity to discharge him but still under strong suspicions of his guilt the interview between henderson and m'gowan was a long one and the disclosures made were considered of too much importance for the former to act without the cooperation and assistance of another magistrate he accordingly desired the prophet to come to him on the following day but one when he said he would secure the presence of a major johnson who was also in the commission and by whose warrant old condy dalton had been originally arrested on suspicion of the murder it was recommended that everything that had transpired between them should be kept strictly secret lest the murderer if made acquainted with the charge which was about to be brought home to him should succeed in escaping from justice young dick who had been sent for by his father recommended this and on those terms they separated chapter fifteen a plot and a prophecy our readers cannot forget a short dialogue which took place between charlie hanlon and the strange female who has already borne some part in the incidents of our story it occurred on the morning she had been sent to convey the handkerchief which hanlon had promised to sarah m'gowan in lieu of the tobacco-box of which we have so frequently made mention and which on that occasion she expected to have received from sarah after having inquired from hanlon why donald dhu was called the black prophet she asked but could he have anything to do with the murder to which hanlon replied that he had been thinking about that and had some talk this morning with a man that's livin a long time indeed that was born a little above the place and he says that the black prophet or m'gowan did not come to the neighborhood until after the murder now this person was no other than red roddy duncan to whom our friend jemmy brannigan made such opprobrious allusion in the character of the black prophet to dick of the grange this man who was generally known by the sobriquet of red body had been for some time looking after the situation of bailiff or driver to dick of the grange and as hanlon was opposed and as hanlon was supposed to possess a good deal of influence with young dick duncan very properly thought he could not do better than cultivate his acquaintance this was the circumstance which brought them together at first and it was something of a dry mysterious manner which hanlon observed in this fellow when talking about the prophet and his daughter that caused him to keep up the intimacy between them when donald dhu had closed his lengthened conference with henderson he turned his steps homewards and had got half-way through the lawn when he was met by red roddy he had only a minute or two before left young dick with whom he held another short conversation 
and as he met Roddy, Dick was still standing within about a hundred yards of them, cracking his whip with that easy indolence and utter disregard of everything but his pleasures, which chiefly constituted his character. "'Don't stand to speak to me here,' said the prophet. "'That young scoundrel will see us. "'Have you tried Hanlon yet? "'And will he do? "'Yes or no?' I haven't tried him, but I'm now on my way to do so. Caution. Certainly I'm no fool, I think. If we can secure him, the business may be managed easily. That is, provided the two affairs can come off on the same night. Caution, I say again. Certainly. I'm no fool, I hope. Pass on. The prophet and he passed each other very slowly during this brief dialogue. The former, when it was finished, pointing naturally towards the Grange or young Dick, as if he had been merely answering a few questions, respecting some person about the place that the other was going to see. Having passed the prophet, he turned to the left by a back path that led to the garden, where, in fact, Hanlon was generally to be found, and where, upon this occasion, he found him. After a good deal of desultory chat, Roddy at last inquired if Hanlon thought there existed any chance of his procuring the post of bailiff. "'I don't think there is, then, to tell you the truth,' replied Hanlon. "'Old Jemmy is against you bitterly, and Master Richard's interest in this business isn't as strong as his.' "'The blackguard old villain!' exclaimed Roddy. "'It will be a good job to give him a dog's knock some night or other.' "'I don't see that either,' replied Hanlon. "'Old Jimmy does a power of good in his way, "'and indeed many an act of kindness "'the master himself gets credit for "'that ought to go to Jimmy's account. "'But you can give me a lift in the drivership, Charlie, if you like. "'I'm afeard not, so long as Jimmy's against you. "'Ah, but couldn't you try and twist that old scoundrel himself in my favour? Well, replied the other, there is something in that, and whatever I can do with him I will, if you will try and do me a favour. Me? Name it, man, name it, and it's done. If it was only to rob the Grange, ha ha. And by the way, I don't know what puts robbing the Grange into my head. And as he spoke, his eye was bent with an expression of peculiar significance on Hanlon. No, replied Hanlon with a difference, it's not to rob the Grange. I believe you know something about the man they call the Black Prophet. Donald do? Why, <clears throat> a little, not much. Nobody, indeed, knows or cares much about him. However, like most people, he has his friends and his enemies. Don't you remember a murder that was committed here about two and twenty years ago? I do. Was that before or after the Black Prophet came to live in this country? After it, after it. No, no, replied, correcting himself. I'm wrong. It was before he came here. Then he could have had no hand in it. Him? Is it him? Why, what puts such a thing as that into your head? Faith, to tell you the truth, Roddy, his daughter Sarah and myself is beginning to look at one another. And to tell you the truth again, I'd wish to know more about the same prophet before I become his son-in-law, as I have some notion of doing. I heard indeed that you were pullin' a string with her, and now that I think of it, if you give me a lift with old Jimmy, I'll give you one there. The bailiff's berth is just the thing for me, not havin' any family of my own. You see, I could have no objection to live in the Grange, as their bailiff always did. But aren't you afeard to tackle yourself to that divil's clip, Sarah? Well, I don't know, replied the other. I grant it's a hazard by all accounts. And yet, continued Roddy, she's a favourite with every one, and indeed there's not a more generous or kinder-hearted creature alive this day than she is. I advise you, however, not to let her into your secrets, for if it was the knockin' of a man on the head, and that she knew it, and was asked about it, out it would go, rather than she'd tell a lie. They say she's handsomer than Gregal Sullivan, said Hanlon, and I think myself she is. 
I don't know. It's a dead tie between them. However, I can give you a lift with your father, but not with herself, for somehow she doesn't like a bone in my skin. She and I made a swap, proceeded Hanlon, some time ago that'd take a laugh out of you. I gave her a pocket handkerchiefy, and she was to give me an old tobacco box, but she says she can't find it, although I have sent for it and asked it myself several times she thinks the stepmother has thrown it away or hid it somewhere body looked at him inquiringly a tobacco box he exclaimed would you like to get it why replied hanlon the poor girl has nothing else to give and i'd like to have something from her even if a ring never was to go on us merely as a keepsake well then replied duncan with something approaching to solemnity in his voice mark my words you promise to give me a lift for the drivership with old jimmy and the two dicks i do well then listen if you will be at the greystone to-morrow night at twelve o'clock midnight i'll engage that sarah will give you the box there why in truth Yodi to tell you the truth if she could give it to me at any other time and place i'd prefer it that greystone is a wild place to be in at midnight it is a wild place still it's there and nowhere else that you must get the box and now that the bargain's made do you think it's true that this old henderson here he looked very cautiously about him has as much money as they say he has i believe he's very rich it is true that he airs the banknotes in the garden here and turns the guineas in the sun for frayed for frayed they'd get blue mould is it it may for all i know but it's more than i've seen yet and now between you and me charlie whisper i say isn't it a thousand pities nobody could hear us surely nonsense who could hear us well, isn't it a thousand pities, Charlie, Avia, that decent fellows like you and me should be as we are, and that mad old villain having his house full of money? Hey, now. It's a hard case, replied Hanlon, but still we must put up with our lot. His father, I'm told, was as poor in the beginning as either of us. Aye, but it's the son we're speaking about, the old tyrannical villain that drives and harries the poor. He has loads of money in the house, they say. Eh? Devil a no myself knows, Roddy. Nor, not making you an ill answer, devil a hair myself cares, Roddy. Let him have much or let him have little. That's your share and mine of it. Charlie, they say, America's a fine place. Talking about money. With a little money there, they say a man could do wonders. Who says that? Why, Donald do, for one, and he knows, for he was there. I believe that Donald was many a place, over half the world, if all's true. Ah, the same Donald's a queer fellow, a deep chap, a cute fellow, but I know more about him than you think. I do I. Why, what do you know? No matter. A thing or two about the same Donnell, and by the same token, a better fellow never lived. And whisper, you're a strong favorite with him, that I know, for we were talking about you. In the meantime, I wish to goodness we had a good scud of cash among us, and we safe and snug in America. Now shake hands and good-bye, and mark me, if you dream of America and a long purse any of these nights come to me and i'll riddle your dream for you he then looked hanlon significantly in the face wrung his hand and left him to meditate on the purport of their conversation the latter as he went out gazed at him with a good deal of surprise so thought he you were feeling my pulse were you i don't think it's hard to guess whereabouts you are however i'll think of your advice at any rate and see what good may be in it but in the name of all that's wonderful how does it come to pass that that red ruffian has such authority over sarah mcgowan as to make her fetch me the very thing i want that tobacco-box and at such a place too 
and such an hour and yet he says that she doesn't like a bone in his skin which i believe i'm fairly in the dark here however time will make it all clear i hope and for that we must wait he then resumed his employment donald dhu who was a man of much energy and activity whenever his purposes required it instead of turning his steps homewards directed them to the house of our kind friend jerry sullivan with whose daughter the innocent and unsuspecting mave it was his intention to have another private interview during the interval that had elapsed since his last journey to the house of this virtuous and hospitable family the gloom that darkened the face of the country had become awful and such as woefully bore out to the letter the melancholy truth of his own predictions typhus fever had now set in and was filling the land with fearful and unexampled desolation famine in all cases the source and origin of contagion had done and was still doing its work the early potato crop for so far as it had come in was a pitiable failure the quantity being small and the quality watery and bad the oats too and all early grain of that season's growth were still more deleterious as food for it had all fermented and become sour so that the use of it and of the bad potatoes too was the most certain means of propagating the pestilence which was sweeping away the people in such multitudes scarcely anything presented itself to him as he went along that had not some melancholy association with death or its emblems to all this however he paid little or no attention when a funeral met him he merely turned back three steps in the direction it went as was usual but unless he happened to know the family from which death had selected its victim he never even took the trouble of inquiring who it was they bore to the grave a circumstance which strongly proved the utter and heartless selfishness of the man's nature on arriving at sullivan's however he could not help feeling startled hard and without sympathy as was his heart at the wild and emaciated evidences of misery and want which a couple of weeks severe suffering had impressed upon them the gentle mave herself patient and uncomplaining as she was had become thin and cheerless yet of such a character was the sadness that rested upon her that it only added a mournful and melancholy charm to her beauty a charm that touched the heart of the beholder at once with love and compassion as yet there had been no sickness among them but who could say to-day that he or she might not be stricken down at once before to-morrow donnell said sullivan after he had taken a seat how you came to prophesy what would happen and what has happened is to me a wonder but sure enough farriaguer which means bitter misfortune it has all come to pass i can't tell myself replied the other how i do it all i know is that the words come into my mouth and i can't help speaking them at any rate that's not surprising i'm the seventh son of the seventh son after seven generations that is i'm the seventh seventh son that was in our family and you must know that the knowledge increases as they go on every seventh son knows more than him that went before him till it comes to the last and he knows more than them all there were six seventh sons before me so that i'm the last for it was never known since the world began that ever more than seven after one another had the gift of prophecy in the same family that's the reason you see that i have no sons the knowledge ends with me it's very strange replied sullivan and not to be accounted for by any one but god glory be to his name it is strange and when i find that i'm going to foretell anything that's bad or unlucky i feel great pain or uneasiness in my mind 
but on the other hand when i am to prophesy what's good i get quite light-hearted and easy i'm all happiness and that's the way i feel now and has felt for the last day or two i wish to god donnel said mrs sullivan that you could prophesy something good for us or continued her charitable and benevolent husband for the thousands of poor creatures that wants it more still than we do sure it's thankful to the almighty we ought to be and is i hope that this woeful sickness hasn't come upon us yet even condy dalton and his family i god be praised for giving him the heart to do it i can forgive him and them don't say them jerry agur observed his wife we never had any bad feelin against them well well continued the husband i can forgive him and all of them now for god help them they're in a state of most heart-breaking destitution livin only upon the bits that the poor starvin neighbors is able to crib from their own hungry mouths for them and here the tears the tears that did honor not only to him but to human nature and his country rolled slowly down his emaciated cheeks for the deep distress to which the man that he believed to be the murderer of his brother had been indeed donnel said mrs sullivan it would be a hard and uncharitable heart that wouldn't relent if it knew what they are sufferin young con is just risin out of the fever that was in the family and it would wring your a glance at mave occasioned her to pause the gentle girl upon whom the prophet had kept his eye during the whole conversation had been reflecting in her wasted but beautiful features both the delicacy and depth of the sympathy that had been expressed for the unhappy daltons sometimes she became pale as ashes and again her complexion assumed the subdued hue of the wild rose for alas that we must say it sorrow and suffering in other words want in its almost severest form had thrown its melancholy hue over the richness of her blush which on this occasion borrowed a delicate grace from distress itself such indeed was her beauty and so gently and serenely did her virtues shine through it that it mattered not to what condition of calamity they were subjected in every situation they seemed to shed some new and unexpected charm upon the eyes of those who looked upon her the mother we said on glancing at her paused but the cord of love and sorrow had been touched and poor mave unable any longer to restrain her feelings burst out into tears and wept aloud on heeding the name and sufferings of her lover her father looked at her and his brow got sad and there was no longer the darkness of resentment or indignation there so true is it that suffering chastens the heart into its noblest affections and purges it of the gloomier and grosser passions poor mave he exclaimed when i let the tears down for the man that has my duther's blood on his hands it's no wonder you should cry for him you love so well oh dear father she exclaimed throwing herself into his arms and embracing him tenderly i feel no misery nor sorrow now the words you have spoken have made me happy all these sufferings will pass away for it cannot be but god will sooner or later reward your piety and goodness oh if i could do anything for 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 anyone and she blushed as she spoke but i cannot there is nothing here that i can do at home but if i could go out and work by the day i'd do it and be happy in order to help the that family that's now brought so low that's so much to be pitied we have already said that the prophet's eye had been bent upon her ever since he came into the house but it was with an expression of benignity and affection which notwithstanding the gloomy character of his countenance no one could more plausibly or willingly assume 
Mave, in the meantime, could scarcely bear to look upon him, and it was quite clear from her manner that she had, since their last mysterious interview, once more fallen back into those feelings of strong aversion with which she had regarded him at first. McGowan saw this, and without much difficulty guessed at the individual who had been instrumental in producing the change. God pardon and forgive me, he exclaimed, as if giving unconscious utterance to his own reflections, for what I had thought of about that darling and lovely girl. But sure, I'll make it up to her, and indeed I feel the words of goodness that's to befall her breaking out of my lips. A Colleen Doss, I had some private discourse with you when I was here last, and will you let me speak a few words to you by ourselves again? No, she replied, I'll hear nothing from you. I don't like you, I can't like you, and I'll hold no private discourse with you. Oh, then, but that voice is music itself, and you are, by all accounts, the best of girls. I'm but sure we have all turned over a new leaf, poor child. I discovered how I was taken in and saved, but sure I can't eat you, and a sweet morsel you'd be, a lanadas, nor can I run away with you, and I seen the day that it's not my heart would hinder me to do that same. Oh, my goodness, what a head of hair, and talking about that, you understand, I'd like to have a word or two with yourself. Say whatever you have to say before my father and mother, then, she replied. I have no, she paused a moment, and seemed embarrassed. The prophet, who skilfully threw in the allusion to her hair, guessed the words she was on the point of uttering, and availing himself of her difficulty, seemed to act as if she had completed what she was about to say. I know, dear, he added, you have no secrets from them. I'm glad to hear it, and for that reason I'm willing to say what I had to say in their presence. So far as I'm concerned, it makes no difference. The allusion to her hair, added to the last observations, reminded her that it might be possible that he had some message from her lover, and she consequently seemed to waver a little, as if struggling against her strong instinctive abhorrence of him. "'Don't be afeard, Mave, dear,' said her mother. "'Sure, poor honest Donald wishes you well, and won't prophesize any harm to you. Go with him.' "'Do, Ocara,' added the father. "'Donald can have nothing to say to you that can have any harm in it. Go for a minute or two, since he wishes it.' Reluctantly, and with an indomitable feeling against the man, she went out, and stood under the shelter of a little elder hedge that adjoined the house. Now tell me, she asked quickly, what is it you have to say to me? I gave young Condy Dalton the pretty ringlet of hair you sent him. What did he say? she inquired. Not much, he replied, till I told him it was the last token that ever you could send him after what your father said to you. Well? why he cursed your father and said he deserved to get his neck broke i don't believe that she replied i know he never said them words or anything like them don't mislead me but tell me what he did say ah poor mave replied you little know what hot blood runs in the dalton's veins he said very little that was creditable to himself and indeed i won't repate it but it was enough to make any girl of spirit have done with him. And don't you know, she replied mournfully, that I have done with him, and that there never can be anything but sorrow and good will between us? Wasn't that my message to him by yourself? It was, dear, and I hope you're still of the same mind. I am, she said, but you are not telling me the truth about him. He never spoke disrespectfully of my father or me. No, indeed, I sure he did not then, or the sorrow syllable. Oh, no, if I said so, don't believe me. And yet the very words he uttered, in consequence of the meaning which they received from his manner, made an impression directly the reverse of their natural import, 
"'Well, then,' she said, "'that's all you have to say to me?' "'No,' he replied, "'it is not. "'I want to know from you "'when you'll be going to your uncle's at Malagamore.' "'Tomorrow,' replied the artless and unsuspicious girl, "'without a moment's hesitation.' well then said he you pass the grey stone at the foot of malibinog of course i know you must now my dear mave i want to show you that i have some insight into futurity what hour will you pass it at about three o'clock as near as i think it may be a little more or a little less very well acushli when you pass the grey stone about a few hundred yards on the right-hand side the first person you will meet will be a young man well made and very handsome that young man will be the person whosoever he is and i don't know myself that will bring you love and wealth and happiness and all that a woman can wish to have with a man nor dear if this doesn't happen never believe anything i say again but if this does happen i hope you'll have good sense akushla makri to be guided by one that's your true friend and that's myself the first person you meet after passing the grey stone on your right hand side remember the words i know there's great luck and high fortune before you for indeed your beauty and goodness well deserves it and they'll get both then they returned into the house mave somewhat surprised but no way relieved while the prophet seemed rather in better spirits by the interview now jerry sullivan said he and you bridget his wife lend your ears and listen the heart of prophet is full of good to you and yours and the good must come to his lips and flow from them when it comes there are three books known to the wise the book of marriage the book of death and the book of judgment open a leaf says the angel of marriage the garden angel of jericho where he brings all love happiness and peace to open a leaf says the angel of marriage him that has one head and ten horns and read us a page of futurity from the prophecy of saint nebuchadnezzar the divine the child is a female child says the angel with one head and ten horns by name mabel sullivan daughter to honest jerry sullivan and his decent wife bridget of ognamorin amen says the prophet time is not tied nor is tied time and neither will wait for man three things will happen a girl young and handsome will walk forth upon the highway and there she will meet a man young and handsome too who will rise her to wealth happiness and grandeur so be it says the book of marriage and amen again says the prophet open a new leaf says nebuchadnezzar the divine a new leaf in the book of judgment and another in the book of death a man was killed and his body hid and a man lived with his blood upon him fate is fate and justice is near for years he will keep the murder to himself till a man's to come that will bring him to judgment then will judgment be passed and the book of death will be opened read says the prophet it is done at last judgment is past and death follows the innocent is set free and the murderer that concealed the murder so long swings at last and all these things is to be found by the wise in the books of marriage death and judgment he then added as he had done at the conclusion of his former prophecy be kind and indulgent to your daughter for she'll soon make all your fortunes and take care of her and yourselves till i see yous again as before he gave them no further opportunity of asking for explanations but immediately departed and as if he had been moved by some impulse or afterthought he directed his steps once more to the grange where he saw young henderson with whom he had another private interview of the purport of which our readers may probably form a tolerably accurate conjecture chapter sixteen
mysterious disappearance of the tobacco-box mcgowan's mind at this period of our narrative was busily engaged in arranging his plans for we need scarcely add here that whether founded on justice or not he had more than one ripening still there preyed upon him a certain secret anxiety from which by no effort could he succeed in ridding himself the disappearance of the tobacco-box kept him so ill at ease and unhappy that he resolved on his way home to make a last effort at finding it out if it could be done and many a time did he heartily curse his own stupidity for ever having suffered it to remain in his house or about it especially when it was so easy to destroy it his suspicions respecting it most certainly rested upon nelly whom he now began to regard with a feeling of both hatred and alarm sarah he knew had little sympathy with him but then he also knew that there existed less in common between her and nelly he thought therefore that his wisest plan would be to widen the breach of ill-feeling between them more and more and thus to secure himself if possible of sarah's co-operation and confidence if not from affection or good feeling towards himself at least from ill-will towards her stepmother for this reason therefore as well as for others of equal if not of more importance he came to the determination of taking to a certain extent sarah into his confidence and thus making not only her quickness and activity but her impetuosity and resentments useful to his designs it was pretty late that night when he reached home and as he had devoted the only portion of his time that remained between his arrival and bedtime to a description of the unsettled state of the country occasioned by what were properly called the famine outrages that were then beginning to take place he made no allusion to anything connected with his projects to either nelly or his daughter the latter of whom by the way had been out during the greater part of the evening the next morning however he asked her to take a short stroll with him along the river which she did and both returned after having had at least an hour's conversation sarah with a flushed cheek and indignant eye and her father with his brow darkened and his voice quivering from suppressed resentment so that so far as observation went their interview and communication had not been very agreeable on either side after breakfast sarah put on her cloak and bonnet and was about to go out when her father said pray ma'am where are you going now it doesn't signify she replied but at all events you needn't ax me for i won't tell you what kind of answer is that to give me do you forget that i'm your father i wish i could for indeed i'm sorry you are oh you know observed nelly she was always a dutiful girl always a quiet good creature why you unbiddable strap what kind of answer is that to give to your father ever since their stroll that morning sarah's eyes had been turned from time to time upon her stepmother with flash after flash of burning indignation and now that she addressed her she said woman you don't know how i scorn you oh you mean and wicked wretch had you no pride during all your life it's but a short time you and i will be under the same roof together and so far as i'm concerned i'll not stoop ever to bandy abuse or ill tongue with you again i know only one other person that is worse and meaner still than you are and there i'm sorry to say he stands in the shape of my father she walked out of the cabin with a flushed cheek and a step that was full of disdain and a kind of natural pride that might almost be termed dignity both felt rebuked and nelly whose face got blanched and pale at sarah's words now turned upon the prophet with a scowl 
would it be possible said she that you'd dare to let out anything to that madcap now said he that the coast is clear i desire you to answer me a question that i'll put to you and mark my words by all that's above us and under us and about us if you don't speak truth i'll be apt to make short work of it what is it she inquired looking at him with cool and collected resentment and an eye that was perfectly fearless there was a tobacco box about this house or in this house do you know anything about it a tobacco box is it ay a tobacco box well and what about it what do you want with it an old rusty tobacco box musha is that what's troubling you this morning come said he darkening i'll have no humbuggin answer me at once do you know anything about it is it about your old rusty tobacco box arrah what did i know about it what the sorrow would a man like you do with a tobacco box that doesn't ever smoke is it mad or raven you are somehow i think the stroll you had with the vagabond gypsy of a daughter of yours hasn't put you into the best of temper or her either i hope you didn't act the villain on me for she looks at me as if she could eat me without salt but indeed she's taken on her own hands finely of late she's gettin' too proud to answer me now when i ax her a question well why don't you ask her as you ought she was out all yesterday evening and when i said you idle strap where were you she wouldn't even think it worth her while to give me an answer the vagabond do you give me one in the meantime what about the box i want speak the truth if you regard your health i know nothing about your box and i wish i could say as much of yourself however i won't long trouble you that i can tell you i and her too she needn't fear that i'll be long under the same roof with her i know anyway i wouldn't be safe she would only stick me in one of her fits now that she's able to fight me now nelly said the prophet deliberately shutting the door i know you to be a hardened woman that has little fear in your heart i think you know me too to be a hardened and determined man there now i have shut and bolted the door and by him that made me you'll never leave this house nor go out of that door a livin woman unless you tell me all you know about that tobacco box now you know my mind and my course act as you like now ha 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 do you think to frighten me she asked laughing derisively me oh how much you're mistaken if you think so not that i don't believe you to be dangerous and a man that one ought to fear but i have no fear of you answer me quickly he replied and as he spoke he seized the very same knife from which she had so narrowly escaped in her conflict with sarah answer me i say and mark i have no reason to wish you alive and as he spoke the glare in his eyes flashed and became fearful ah said she there's your daughter's look and the same knife too that was near doin for me onct well don't think that it's fear makes me say what i'm going to say but that's the same knife and besides i dreamed last night that i was dressed in a black cloak and a black cloak they say is death ay death and i know i'm not fit to die or to meet judgment and you know that too now then tell me what it is you want with the box no he replied sternly and imperatively i'll tell you nothing about it but get it at once before my passion rises higher and deadlier well then mark me i'm not afeard of you but i have the box and how do you come by it he asked sarah was looking for a cobweb to stop the blood where she cut me in our fight the other day and it came tumbling out of a cranny in the wall and where is it now i'll get it for you she replied but you must let me out first why so because it's not in the house and where is it don't think you'll escape me it's in the thatch of the roof the prophet deliberately opened the door and catching her by the shoulder held her prisoner as it were until she should make her words good 
the roof was but low and she knew the spot too well to make any mistake about it here said she is the cross i scraped on the stone under the place she put up her hand as she spoke and searched the spot but in vain there certainly was the cross as she had marked it and there was the slight excavation under the thatch where it had been but as for the box itself all search for it was fruitless it had disappeared end of section seven